All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? Week magazine notes it was a good week last week for Greek donkeys, which will no longer be forced to give rides to obese tourists visiting the mountainous island of Santorini. After a pressure campaign by animal rights activists, the Greek government passed a law banning donkey riders in excess of 220 pounds. We certainly hope this does not result in fat shaming of Santorini tourists. And it was also a good week, but we're not sure about this. It might also be considered a bad week for creative destruction with the news that after a painting by Banksy, the elusive British graffiti artist spontaneously shredded itself at Sotheby's in London when an anonymous bidder brought it, bought it for $1.4 million, the art world being what it is, experts say the tattered remains of girl with balloons are now worth more than two million. And what I guess is a, would be considered a bad week, or is it a good week for creative destruction? Again, we have this. After artist Sayeth Elatab of Patterson, New Jersey, set fire to 20 of his paintings in his backyard to protest poor attendance figures at his most recent gallery show, said the artist, they were too busy to attend. So I burned my paintings. Now it appears that in his case, the burnt paintings did not increase in value, so far as we know. And Mr. Vermillon opines that it, perhaps they weren't too busy to, to view his paintings. It may have been a, another reason why the gallery showing was poorly attended. I'll say this, I may not know art, but I know what I don't like. And final item, we'd have to say that it was an ugly week last week for selling out in the wake of a piece in the New York Times by Frank Bruni about Senator Lindsey Graham, who notes the takes the cake as the quintessential Washington hack. The Republican from South Carolina was once one of Donald Trump's strongest Republican critics. He's now sunk to a new low in his shameless kowtowing to the president for the Trumpists who now dominate the Republican Party. During the Kavanaugh hearings, Said Mr. Bruni, Graham's red-faced rant in defense of the nominee was as outrageously overwrought as a diva's aria at La Scala. Back in the 2016 GOP presidential primaries, we would remind you, Graham called Trump the world's biggest jackass, adding, you know how to make America great again? Tell Donald Trump to go to hell. Now he's a Trump man all the way, causing Frank Bruni to ask, well, whatever the motivations, Graham embodies our rotten politics. And its deeply cynical tribal nature better than anyone except perhaps Trump himself. And speaking of Donald Trump, do we have to? Well, yes, but let's back into this one. As you have no doubt heard by now, a hair-raising story has emerged from Ankara, Turkey, about a Washington Post columnist named Jamal Khashoggi. The Saudi embassy in Turkey, like the Roach Motel, saw Khashoggi check in, but not check out. At first, President Trump threatened Saudi Arabia uh, with severe punishment if it turned out that bad things had happened to Mr. Khashoggi. Although more recently, he has, he's expressed the possibility that Mr. Khashoggi may have been done in by 
rogue killers. No, Radio Parallax has no information that O.J. Simpson is on the case. But this whole thing is turning into a giant leak fest between the Turkish government, which seems to be playing Saudi Arabia off America. And, uh, well, America seems to, at the moment, be willing to give the Saudis cover for this issue. As far as we can figure out from the various data streams coming out, Mr. Khashoggi, a journalist who was not even a critic of the Saudi regime, but had just perhaps said a few things that were somewhat critic of the autocratic rule of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. The day he went to go visit the embassy, apparently 15 Saudis flew into Ankara and, by the way, flew out the next day, one of whom was an expert on mobile pathology and autopsy units and reportedly, at least according to some reports, brought with him a bone saw. There are reports that Mr. Khashoggi had an Apple Watch on him which recorded his interrogation, torture, and murder. There's apparently also video to go along with this. In fact, as I'm recording this right now, the word just came out that the New York Times is issuing some sort of transcript of these events. Now, the murder or murders of journalists have been taking place all over the world. We tried to report on that for this program because it's something that should be paid attention to. This story has so many strange elements that it's just, this one has made page one, when a a lot of other ones should have. This one is so complicated, I'm quite certain we're not going to get to the bottom of it in the short term, or probably even in the long run. It's been reported that Mr. Khashoggi has ties to the CIA and the Saudi intelligence service. He's known to be a confidant of members of the royal family. Reportedly, his family is well-connected to global power structures, including Lockheed Martin. And, it should be mentioned, Khashoggi's uncle was none other than Adnan Khashoggi, the notorious Saudi arms dealer, who was an important player in the Iran-Contra affair and was once one of Saudi Arabia's richest men. Uncle Adnan was deeply connected to Lockheed Martin, as demonstrated by the fact that between 1970 and 1975, he received $106 million in commissions from the U.S. weapons giant. And it appears that the fact that the Trump administration is going along with this being a big deal may have something to do with the fact that uh, the Saudis were planning to purchase Russia's missile system in lieu of ours. And, um, well, this allows the Trump administration to put a little more pressure on the kingdom. Trump specifically cited how great the Saudis were as allies because, man, they sure buy a lot of our arms. And I'm a little bit flabbergasted by the fact that we we sent our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, over to speak with both the Turkish president and the Saudi king and crown prince, which has prompted his president to say, we're looking into this. I don't know if any of you caught some of the footage, my dear listener, of reporters allowed into the Saudi embassy when they were basically walking down the hall and opening up closets to show you like, well, no, he's not in there. Apparently somebody's got the Saudis by the short hairs on this one if we, if we plan to use some leverage. I wouldn't be surprised if we just back off, say, well, we're not really sure what happened. We can find somebody to hang this on, a rogue killer that showed up, hang him, you know, cut his head off in the public square back in Saudi Arabia and call it a day, move on with our arms sales. God, we've become cynical. But uh, as I'm following this report, apparently uh, Turkish authorities have gotten into the the house of the general council in Ankara where they believe the body was buried. Uh, The reports are that this watch that he activated had a 
a tracking ability on it, so they were able to follow where the body went after they killed him. At least that's one report I saw. At any rate, don't be too surprised if uh, Jamal Khashoggi's body turns up in the flower bed. Shades of Dorothea Puente. There's also the fact that before the Turkish authorities were allowed into the embassy, a cleaning crew apparently was heavily at work. The walls were all freshly painted. Although in spite of that, they claim they still have some evidentiary evidence of a murder. I don't know. We'll see where this, this winds up. But it does invite us to talk a little bit about the international arms trade, which frankly, doing four or five complete shows to discuss probably wouldn't cover it adequately. So you can pretty much count on the fact that the four or five minutes we're going to spend ain't going to make the nut. But to quote from the August 18th issue of The Economist magazine, Only a few months ago, Canadians were earnestly debating whether or not the country's liberal administration was right to go ahead with executing a $12 billion contract to deliver armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. The government said it would, but acknowledged its critics' concerns by agreeing to adopt a version of an international treaty that limits arms sales to rogues. No, not rogue killers, rogue states, noted the piece. However, things took a different turn. It was the Saudis who plunged the deal into uncertainty. After Canada's foreign minister urged the release of some political prisoners on Twitter, the Saudi government declared that all new business with Canada was suspended. This left Canadians unsure if the kingdom still wants the arms deal. And if the Saudis do walk away, plenty of other countries will be happy to supply armored cars. Peter Weitzman, a researcher in a Stockholm-based think tank, said they could get their combat vehicles from Turkey, South Korea, or Brazil. Meanwhile, in the United States, Congress has been pressing the administration to implement the letter of the law that would enforce countries to make a hard, instant choice between, yes, buying American or buying Russian weapons. This is part of the hardball world of international politics we don't see enough written about. In the global arms market, total demand is growing, and the number of sellers is rising. And the Western countries, that's right, the Western countries that have dominated the business are less confident of shaping the playing field. Above all, buyers are becoming more insistent on their right to shop around. For the likes of India, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, this is a buyer's market, said Lucy Bernard Sudrow of the International Institute of Strategic Studies, a London-based think tank. The article goes on. The numbers show that the global commerce and conventional weapons is still dominated by the United States. But America feels strangely nervous about maintaining that role, and this year it has adopted a more aggressive sales posture. Under the policy proclaimed last April and mapped out in more detail last month, this is writing in August, American diplomats have been told to promote weapon sales more actively and speed up procedures for approving them. I can see how that call would go down. Mr. Ambassador, you have not met your quota in sales of surface-to-air missiles. Have you considered throwing in a Lady Gaga concert? Oh, oh, wait, no, bad idea. Anyway, let's let's move on. We'll return to this topic another day. You know, speaking of concerts, I remember so well, to segue rather dramatically, how in my youth, uh, my parents would go off to San Francisco to, to listen to the likes of Tony Bennett, Johnny Mathis, I think in at least one case, Frank Sinatra. And I'm happy to report that Tony Bennett is as popular as ever. But we haven't heard much from Johnny Mathis of late, although I think he did do a concert not so long ago. He's getting up there in years in his 80s, I'm sure. But the name Johnny Mathis (laughs) came up when I listened to a replay of a John Waters interview on Terry Gross's Fresh Air. 
John Waters is, of course, an incredible character. I, I can't say I think much of what he produces. At least what I've seen on the silver screen was somewhere between, I don't know, terrible and worse than terrible. But he has made himself into a public persona that is, well, he's, he's just very amusing. And when he talked about his unabashed admiration of Johnny Mathis... I had to laugh. He did set up an interview with with Johnny Mathis, and he assured him, "I have no agenda. I just, I just want, I just want to talk to you." He said that, well, you know, Johnny Mathis, you know, Googled up his resume. He was bound to have some reservations, but apparently, it all came off well, and nothing bad happened. But I'm sorry to say that something bad is going to happen for the remainder of this show because I'm going to read some stuff here that's uh, kind of disturbing. The first comes from the October 15th issue of The New Yorker. Under the reporter at large, the article by Dexter Filkins, entitled Enigma Machines. Subheadline was their connection between between a Russian bank and the Trump campaign. That's worth a couple minutes, as is the October 1st issue of The New Yorker's article by Jane Mayer, titled Russia Won. Its subheadline is, a scholar argues in the 2016 election, Putin's meddling was decisive. Before I do that, I want to cite an, uh, an item that was on PBS last October 1st. It was titled POV, Dark Money, Point of View, and uh, echoes the, the, the book, Dark Money by Jane Mayer, although it's quite a different matter in this story. The documentary examines how is untraceable corporate and foreign money corrupting the American democracy. The documentary runs down the answer by settling in Montana to watch how the state's citizen-run government is warped beyond recognition by a flood of mysterious funding that spreads lies through attack ads while apparently buying the loyalty of certain lawmakers. They note the story is set in big sky country, but it reveals the scale of a national crisis. Anyway, to excerpt from the piece by Dexter Filkins. Back in June of 2016, after news broke the Democratic National Committee had been hacked, a group of prominent computer scientists went on alert. Reports said that the infiltrators were probably Russian, which suggested to most members of the group that one of the country's intelligence agencies had been involved. They speculated that if the Russians were hacking the Democrats, they must be hacking the Republicans too. A computer scientist who identified himself only as Max told the author, we thought there was no way in the world the Russians would just attack the Democrats. This is a small group, by the way, a handful of scientists scattered across the country, and they're politically diverse. Max described himself to the author as a John McCain Republican. Its members sometimes work with law enforcement or for private clients. Mostly, they acted as self-appointed guardians of the Internet, trying to thwart hackers and to keep the system clean of malware. People think the Internet runs on its own, Max told me, it doesn't. We do this to keep the internet safe. Article notes the hack on the DNC seemed like a pernicious attack on the integrity of the web, as well as the American political system. These computer scientists decided to investigate whether any Republicans had been hacked too. We were trying to protect them, Max said, which is a very interesting spin on all of this. They got interested because they wanted to protect the Republicans. So Max's group began combing the domain name system, a worldwide network that acts as a sort of phone book for the internet, translating easy-to-remember domain names into IP addresses, the string of numbers that computers use to identify one another. Wherever anyone goes online to send an email or visit the web, 
his or her device contacts the domain name system to locate the computer that it is trying to connect with. Every query, known as a DNS lookup, can be logged, leaving records in a constellation of servers that extends through private companies, public institutions, and universities. Max and his group are part of a community that has unusual access to these records, which are especially useful to cybersecurity experts who work to protect clients from attacks. Still with me? Skipping ahead a bit. As Max and his colleagues searched DNS logs for domains associated with Republican candidates, they were perplexed by what they encountered. We went looking for fingerprints similar to what was on the DNC computers, but we didn't find what we were looking for, Max told me. We found something totally different, something unique. In the small town of Linitz, Pennsylvania, a domain linked to the Trump organization, mail1trumpemail.com, seemed to be behaving in a peculiar way. The server that housed the domain belonged to a company called ListTrack, which mostly helped deliver mass marketing emails. Article notes that some Trump Organization domains do send mass email blasts, but the one that Max and his colleagues spotted appeared not to be sending anything. At the same time, though, a very small group of companies seem to be trying to communicate with it. Examining records for the Trump domain, Max's group discovered DNS lookups from a pair of servers owned by Alpha Bank, one of the largest banks in Russia. Max said, and we thought, why the hell is a Russian bank communicating with a server that belongs to the Trump organization and at such a rate? They counted up more than 2,000 attempts between May and September. And they found another entity that seemed to be reaching out to the Trump organization domain with, with great frequency, Spectrum Health of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Spectrum Health is closely linked with the DeVos family. Richard DeVos Jr. is chairman of the board. Wife Betsy DeVos was appointed secretary of education by Donald Trump. Her brother, Eric Prince, is the Trump associate who's been attracted to the scrutiny of Robert Mueller. Oh, he's the guy behind Blackwater. The article goes on to note that the DNS records raised vexing questions. Why was the Trump organization's domain set up to send mass marketing emails conducting such meager activity? And why were computers at Alpha Bank and Spectrum Health trying to reach a server that didn't seem to be doing anything? After analyzing the data, Max said, we decided this was a covert communications channel. In August of 2016, Max decided to reveal the data he and his colleagues had assembled. If the covert communications were real, this potential threat to our country needed to be known before the elections, he said. After some discussion, he and his lawyers decided to hand over the findings to Eric Lichtblau of the New York Times. Lichtblau was interested and wrote a draft of an article for the Times. Max's lawyers, meanwhile, contacted the FBI to alert agents that a story about Trump would be running in a national publication. A few days later, an FBI official called Lichtblau and asked him to come to the Bureau's headquarters. After a meeting, they told him that they, too, were looking into potential Russian interference in the election and thought the information from Max's group could be a significant advance. The FBI asked Lichtblau to delay publishing his story, saying that releasing the news could jeopardize their investigation. While the story set, Dean Back at the Times executive editor decided it would not suffice to report the existence of computer contacts without knowing their purpose. Over time, the FBI's interest in the possibility of Alpha Bank connections seemed to wane, the article notes. But on October 30th, when Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid wrote a letter to James Comey, then director of the FBI, charging that the Bureau was withholding information about close ties and coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia, we had a window, said Lick Blau. His story about Alpha Bank ran the next day, but 
it bore only a modest resemblance to what he had filed. The headline, investigating Donald Trump, FBI sees no clear link to Russia, seemed to exonerate the Trump camp. Anyway, it's a complex article, dear listener. You, you may wish to read it yourself. In spite of a seemingly exonerating article in the New York Times, this did not go away. It should be noted that this is not a definitive smoking gun. At the end of the article, it's pointed out that the researchers I spoke with were careful to point out that the limits of DNS data prevent them from going beyond speculation. Experts are still probing the matter. When the author asked one of these experts, is it possible there's an innocuous explanation for all of this? The researcher answered, yes, of course. And it's also possible that space aliens did this. It's possible, it's just not very likely. Anyway, you highly computer savvy people may want to take a look at this and form your own opinion and then share it with us via info at radioparallax.com. And finally, we have Jane Meyer's piece, Russia One. Jane Mayer's piece notes that in public, Donald Trump has characterized all efforts to investigate the foreign attacks on American democracy during the campaign as a witch hunt. In March, he insisted that the Russians had no impact on our voters whatsoever. Few people, including Trump's opponents, have publicly challenged the widespread belief that no obtainable evidence can prove that Russian interference changed any votes. Democrats, for the most part, have avoided attributing Hillary Clinton's defeat directly to Russian machinations. They have more readily blamed James Comey, the former FBI director, for reversing Clinton's thin lead in the final days of the campaign by reopening a criminal investigation into her mishandling of classified emails. Noted Jane Mayer, many have expressed frustration with Clinton's weak performance as a candidate and with her campaign's tactical errors. Instead of investigating whether Russia tipped the electoral scales on its own, they focused on the possibility that Trump colluded with Russia and that this, along with other crimes, might be exposed by the probe being conducted by the special counsel Robert Mueller. Mayor notes that while politicians may be too timid to explore this subject, a new book from, of all places, Oxford University Press promises to be incendiary. It's titled Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect the President. What We Don't, Can't, and Do Know by Kathleen Hall Jameson, professor of communications at the University of Pennsylvania. Much of the remainder of the article concerns itself with discussions with Jameson about all of this. Jameson acknowledges that it may never be possible to have an airtight case. In the introduction to the book, she writes that any case for influence will likely be similar to that in a civil legal trial, in which the verdict is rendered not with the certainty that E equals MC squared, but rather based on the preponderance of evidence. She points out we do make most of life's decisions based on less than rock-solid incontrovertible evidence. Her case is based on a growing body of knowledge about the electronic warfare waged by, waged by Russian trolls and hackers, whom she terms discourse saboteurs, and on five decades worth of academic studies about what kinds of persuasion can influence voters. And that's where the heart of this argument lies. Anyway, sadly, we don't have time to actually do this article the justice it deserves. I do want to point out that it cites Julian Assange, the head of WikiLeaks, who has denied working with the Russian government as being someone who manifestly despised Clinton. In a leaked Twitter direct message, he, he said in the 2016 election, it would be much better for the GOP to win. Jameson notes that if the WikiLeaks release, which was so harmful to Clinton, was a Russian-backed effort to rescue Trump's candidacy by generating a scandal to counterbalance the Access Hollywood tape and the intelligence report on Russian interference, Jameson said it worked splendidly. 
anyway, wish I had more time to, to, to flesh this out as to how it was done, but I don't. So we're going to stop here and we'll return to it in a future show. We also hope that when we resume next time, we will talk about a hoax worthy of Alan Abel pulled off by three academics. Taking aim at what they called grievance studies, the trio produced 20 shoddy, absurd, unethical papers loaded with incoherent postmodern gibberish, seven of which were published in respectable academic journals. Among the most outrageous papers included a thesis claiming astronomy is a patriarchal construct that should be replaced by feminist astrology, another arguing that dog parks are rape-condoning spaces, and still another that demanded that males who masturbate while thinking about a woman first obtain her consent. Yow. program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We expect to see you next week, but we may take a week or two off after that. In place of Radio Parallax, we expect they will broadcast Richard Nixon talking about the International Monetary Fund or something equally interesting. Taste your lips of wine anytime, night or day. Only trouble is, gee whiz, I'm dreaming my life away. I need you so that I could die. I love you so, and that is why.